welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Okay. Um, so, that was a bit more of like a kind of philosoph- philosophical exercise to, I guess, introduce you where I'm coming from. And it might feel that that was in many ways not rooted deeply in the scripture. Um, but I think because we're going to spend a lot of time in the scripture, I want you to see that we can engage with God in ways that aren't just what does the Bible say? I'm reading through the Bible. And we can often engage with God in more philosophical ways and then look at the Bible and go, oh, no, that still fits, you know. And there's many times, I don't know if you've ever experienced, you've had an encounter with Jesus or something and you go, man, what the heck was that? How does that fit in the Bible? And then actually, you know, he takes you to a verse and you go, oh, no, that works okay. Um, and so oftentimes we don't just have a Bible verse to create an experience. Oftentimes we have an experience and we can find it in the Bible. Um, God's not um, beyond, you know, engaging with us outside of the scriptures. And in fact, I think he does it um, a lot. And some people he does it much more and some people he does it much less. Um, I think it's a very personal thing how we engage with God. Some people spend more time soaking on the floor and having some sort of mystical encounter. Some people go out for a walk. Some people spend hours reading the Bible. Some people spend hours reading other stuff. Um, and so I think it, I just wanted to introduce some philosophical thought of like, who are we and who is God? Because I think those are the two things I want to be challenging all week um, as we go. And we will look at that in a bit more depth in scripture. But before we look at the scriptures and read them too much, I want to um, talk about the scriptures as a whole. Um, because I think um, whilst the scripture is one of the biggest blessings we have, uh, it, it's an amazing uh gift from God that leads us and guides us and teaches us and um, and in many ways grounds us and roots us um, it's also probably the one of the most destructive gifts from God we've had and can be one of the most divisive um, and uh, supportive uh, tools uh, or gifts of really terrible things um, you know, many, many things have been done in the name of the Bible. You look at Crusades, you look at the doctrine of discovery, which says, go into all the world. God has given the world to Christians to go into the world and kill, rape, and enslave anyone that isn't God's person. <laughs> and, you know, you see Europe taking over the whole world in the name of God and enslaving huge countries. I mean, countries full of people being enslaved, their women being raped, being maimed. Um, the stories of uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, his crowds when they were in um, America, it said that they they raped the woman, they enslaved the men, and they threw the babies in the in the rivers like the uh, waters of uh, what did he say? Like the lake of fire where they belong, where they came from. And so, it, you know, there was this deep ingrained. They genuinely thought they were doing this Christian thing. These people are evil. They're not. They're not God's people. We are God's people. If they don't convert, then they are evil. And we can throw them in a lake and drown them. We can rape them. We can enslave them and make them do our work. Um, really horrific stuff done in the name of someone's interpretation of Scripture. Um, and so Scripture is really dangerous if we're not careful. Um, you know, when you look at this big segregation laws that were starting to come down in America, um, like, you know, a little over half a century ago, the biggest proponents to keep segregation, to stop our white kids 
going to school with those black kids, to stop our white woman having to go in the same door to the laundrette as those black women. You know, the biggest proponents of this, church, Christians. Now, let me say this, the biggest opposition to it at times was also the church. And both of them had Bible verses. And so you'll find this again and again and again, this Bible verses for anything and everything, right? I mean, uh, let me take two people I really, really respect and admire. Um, I spent a lot of time at Bethel, um, and I really respect this guy called Chris Valton there. He's very prophetic, very um, incredible insight, definitely hears from God, like, I mean, really profoundly at times. And his view of the end times are that things are going to get better and better and better, that God is looking for a transformed world, a transformed earth, heaven on earth, and things are going to get better and better and better. And at some point, Jesus is going to come back for a victorious church, for a beautiful, transformed world that looks much more like heaven than when he left. Um, Take, for example, another person, uh, a guy called Mike Bickle, who I absolutely love. and I think he's a really profound uh, teacher. He's really got a powerful message on intimacy with God. He spends hours and hours a day on prayer and teaches many people to connect with God in a real intimate way. His view on the end times that he preaches also from the Bible, both of these are taught from the Bible, is that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and that the church is going to get more and more persecuted and have to be more and more diligent in a dark and evil time. And eventually, when it can't get any worse, Jesus will return and he'll make it all right. Those are like the opposite message. You couldn't get two different messages if you tried from two people that are beautiful lovers of Jesus who deeply love him and hear from him and have the same Bible. And both of them have read the Bible and come to complete polar opposite views and teach that to many thousands and thousands of people. So the Bible isn't necessarily the answer at times. Do you know what I mean? To say, well, what does the Bible say? Or the Bible clearly says this. Anyone that says the Bible clearly says, I think is like on crack or something. Like, because certainly I'd like to know how they read the Bible because the Bible doesn't clearly say much to me, (laughs) right? Anything the Bible says, I could probably argue with another Bible verse somewhere. Now, I think, you know, maybe through my lens of interpretation or the way I approach things, it's clear about certain things. But someone else with a different view might come to me and go, well, clearly, it doesn't clearly say that. I think it says the opposite. Um, and so many of the things I'll present to you, you might have a completely different view based on how you approach scripture. And so this is why before we just go into this big in-depth reading of scripture and look through scripture, I want to talk a bit about scripture. I want to talk about and be a bit raw and real because I think most of the time we can be, um, gullible feels like a very harsh word but I feel like most of the time most Christians can be quite gullible when it comes to approaching the scripture where they will almost fall for anything with this black and white the scripture says it I believe it um, I read a, a quote just uh, yesterday I wish I could remember it in fact you know what I took a screenshot of it and sent it to my friend so I'll, I'll read it because I, I'm fascinated by um, this this talks deeply about what I'm saying um, about this absolute uh, trust that the Bible is God's answer to everything um here you go you ready for this Uh, i won't say who it's from it says the bible is the most relevant book to any person in any situation at any point in time now think about that is that true the bible is the most relevant book to any person at any time in any situation Uh, i've lost my phone and my wallet 
I'm stuck in London and I need to get into Leeds by seven o'clock tonight. What should I do next? Or even, I've got my wallet. Which train should I get? Let me turn to the Bible and check. I mean, it's, 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 I'm being silly. Of course, like, that's a very nuanced situation. Which job should I get? Should I get this job in engineering or should I get this job in accountancy? The Bible isn't remotely relevant in that sense. If I'm just looking for a very clear black and white, which, what should I do? Who should I marry? Girl A or girl B? Right? I mean, the Bible gives us tools to like, form us and bring us to a place where we can make a good and educated decision, perhaps. Maybe the Bible shows that if we have a, a formed view of godliness and you know what it looks to be a, a good and healthy person, we might look at certain people and go, ooh, not girl A, definitely girl B. Or maybe, oh, neither. Maybe I should actually work on myself for a while. Or, you know, like, so the Bible can do a lot of things for us, but the Bible isn't you know, God's answer book. I think this, this is something we really need to hammer home, is the Bible is a tool to lead us in our journey with God and connect us to God. The Bible's purpose is to connect us to God. The Bible's job is not to replace God. And I think many Christians have, frankly, replaced God with the Bible at times. They could get by without God. You could take God out of the equation. And if you just left them the Bible, they could have some good sound doctrine, some good sound uh, tools for life and instruction for life and what we should do. And we'll just keep doing that and we'll be fine. Uh, because I prayed a certain prayer and I'm just adhering to the rules. And uh, that might be okay for some people. That might work out for them. But I'm not sure, again, with my interpretation, um, that that's necessarily what Christianity looks like, what it should be like for us to walk with Jesus and to do life with Jesus. And so there's plenty of ways that we misunderstand the Bible or twist it or abuse it. And I, and I, I really want to, in some ways, unravel our deep-seated uh, faith in the Bible as the answer to all things in this, like, I mean, I think sometimes we almost treat the Bible like the Quran. You know, like, Christians treat the Bible almost like Muslims treat the Quran, where it's like, it's this deeply holy thing you know you it has to be held up uh, off, off the ground you know we, we couldn't possibly i remember one time <laughs> i was i was quite a young believer at this time and i grew up in the church but i was starting to get a bit serious about my faith and um i was in this youth group um we had like this bible study for like the serious youth group you know the people that actually meant it you know you're a youth leader you know this you know there's people that come to youth group and then there's the people of god you know, um, and so I was, yeah, yeah. So I was there with all the other people that thought they were as good as me, but they weren't quite. You know, no, but we're all there, and we're we're doing our Bible study, and one of them says, "Hey, could you? I forgot my Bible." This guy clearly wasn't, you know. But anyway, um, he says, "I forgot my Bible. Could you um, give me one of the ones on the shelf?" So I grabbed one on the shelf and I threw it over to him, and everyone in the room just went, <laughs> like they just freaked out that I just threw a Bible across the room. And, like, the guy dove out the way, which is funnier, like, than actually, like, trying to save it, because, like, I cause... I say he's the problem, you know? But I was just like, it's a book! Like, I can set it on fire! There's still a Bible kicking about that I can use. You know what I mean? Like, it's like... It's, 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 it's not like... I chucked Jesus across the room and even then I'm pretty sure Jesus would be okay with, like, some banter and some, like, messing around. Um... But, like, you know, this is what I'm talking about of, like, such a hyper view of the Bible that, like, you know, like, I can't, like, underline some text in it or hi- highlight it, you know? I- I've been around Christians that are like, oh, no, you've wrote in your, your Bible, you know? And then I think, goodness, what would they do with um, Sarah, you know, doing amazing artwork within their Bible? And um, it's just fascinating to me. But what is the Bible? Do you ever stop and think or ask these questions? You know, it's, it's, it's probably one of the more dangerous questions you can ask. What is the Bible? Because it's not 
going to be what you think most of the time. Uh, most people have a very uh, black and white uninformed opinion of what the Bible is. First of all, the Bible's the word of God, right? No, the Bible isn't the word of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, hey, I'm the word of God, by the way. Um, in the Bible, when it says the word of God, it's, it's one of two words. It's rhema, which is the living, active, spoken word of God. So that's not what the Bible is. It's not a living, active, spoken word of God. God can, in a living, active, spoken way, speak through the Bible, but he could also give you a rhema word through a billboard or through a friend like it's a living active spoken word it's when you hear god speak to you right now in my situation right now it might actually be something that might help you catch a train (laughs) that would be a rhema word of god if god was like hey phil get on that platform and jump on the train that's one word and the other word for um the word that is used for word of god is this word logos and again not the bible the logos is Jesus. In fact, it's probably a bit blunt to say it's Jesus. It's probably a bit bigger than that, but John uses it frequently to describe Jesus. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And we're not talking about the Bible here. In the beginning was the Bible, and the Bible was God. And all things were created through the Bible. No. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was God, and all things were created through Jesus, and all things were created for Jesus. And You know, Jesus is the Word of God. And, um, I don't want to get too academic, so I'm kind of trying to avoid that. Um, but I don't know what they're up to if they're going to come in. But um, I don't want to get too academic. But basically, John, um, it seems when we look a bit closer, um, was quite a bit of a fan of the Stoics, who were a philosophical uh, movement of the Hellenistic kind of uh, philosophy. And the, the Stoics believed that you couldn't have um, a philosophical thought that didn't actually have an outworking. You know, it was one thing to say, well, like, yeah, I think that God is love. But if it didn't have an actual outworking, then who cares? Like, you've got to have some meat to to your, your message. And John had this view as well. And, and the Stoics often use this word logos, this word. It, what it meant was it meant an idea or a thought that had practical outworking. That it actually hit earth running. You know, it was a thought that it, it could manifest you know so it was you might say god can heal but unless you actually see some healed people who cares what god can do hypothetically and this was a the stoics they, they it was this kind of concept of divine reason reason has to have some sort of real meat and potatoes behind it and uh that might mean very little to uh, people that aren't english um, <laughs> um and so john uses this language for jesus which makes it really interesting doesn't it because he's saying jesus is the he's the thing like this idea has some real substance here and that's what we read when we read the word of god um, throughout the new testament it's talking about the substance behind our words and our beliefs it's not talking about a book and in fact there's nowhere in the bible where it refers to itself as the word of god now you can say that phrase if it helps you or if it doesn't but don't ever read the phrase in the bible the word of god and think it means the bible because it's never meant that i mean the bible didn't exist at that point right i mean they had the torah and the talmud you know the the first um old testament basically um but like you know it's not like paul's writing his letter to timothy and saying hey by the way could you pick up my uh my coat and my books that i forgot and thinking this is going to be the word of god bible it's going to be up there with genesis and nehemiah like he's not thinking that he's writing a letter to his friend 
Um, and so it's really important that we don't um, elevate what the original authors, especially of the New Testament, thought they were writing. And actually, probably the original authors of the Old Testament probably didn't think they were writing something that was going to be the Bible, that thousands of years later, people were going to be introspectively tearing it apart, systematic theology style, and trying to you know, get the exact meaning of this or that or this. Because not only is that not what it's supposed to be, it's not what it ever was. The Jews never had this approach to the Bible. So when the Jewish people approached the Bible, um, they had something called a yoke. We talked about this um, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, so a rabbi's yoke was how he interpreted the Bible and thought it could be applied. And so um, that inherently means that if rabbis had different yokes, had they, they had different interpretations of the Bible, it meant there were different interpretations of the Bible. It meant that they were open to different views about this text. And in fact, for a rabbi to have a view of any text, so if you said to the rabbi, hey, what do you think Isaiah 6 is talking about? He had to have, before he could say, this is my opinion, he had to be able to teach at least seven opinions. If he couldn't teach seven different views, he wasn't entitled to have his own. And the reason they did that is they wanted people to have this holistic approach to the scriptures where they knew all the different options, where they explored different options. They didn't just read it and go, oh, that's what it must mean. They sat down and thought, well, what could it mean? It could mean that. That's pretty crazy, but it could mean it. And it could mean this. And well, I like that, but probably I'm going to gear towards that because I like it, not necessarily because it's true. So, But it could mean this, and that's a bit more balanced. And they would think of the different views and they would teach these different views and they would share these different views and they would then share, but this is my view. This is what I believe. And can you imagine if most pastors that taught nowadays had that same study process, would they still teach the same thing every Sunday? I'm not sure they would because I think it would really challenge a lot of us on what do I think that passage means if we had to come up with seven different passages or interpretations. But the Jews themselves always challenged what they could mean. But not only that, they challenged the scripture itself. So if you look in the scripture, Jews challenged what the scripture said. So in some passages, they go, well, David said this, but I don't think that. Or they would say, well, God gave us this law, but I don't think that's for today. They would have differing views within the Bible. So even within the Bible, they're having an ongoing discussion about, well, it could mean this, but I think it means that. Um, prime example do you ever you know when you're doing your bible reading maybe you've tried to do like the bible in a year or have you, any of you ever done that like you've tried to like read the whole bible anyone tried i've tried to read it i failed i didn't read the whole bible long ago and um, like i've never read the bible right through genesis through revelation or um you know the chronological one which is kind of a, a head spinner because like it's really hard to get your head around it's like oh wow isaiah actually lived all the way back then and this you know it's kind of weird but uh if you're reading through your Bible and you're trying to do it all, I don't know if you got as far as uh, Kings or Samuel. <laughs> that's quite far in, actually. But getting through Leviticus and all of those guys, that's the hard part, right? But if you ever get through it, you, you, you notice um, you've got like Chronicles and Kings. Have you ever noticed that First Chronicles and Second Chronicles and First Kings and Second Kings are basically the same? And you're reading through and you, you read through one batch and you're like, okay, great. That's all of Israel's history and like all this different stuff. And, and then you get into like the next one and you start reading and you're like, I've read this. Like, Seriously, are you seriously making me read the same stories again? Like, you know, you're like, what is the deal? This is not fair. But then if you're diligent enough and you don't skip through, right through them and just get to the good stuff, you, you read them again, you actually might have noticed that there's quite significant differences. So the stories are the same, but some of the details are radically different. And so you go, well, who's right? 
Like, which story is right? And a lot of people, I mean, some of the, the theological legwork that has to happen to make both these stories true um, is fascinating because it's really important to people that are very literal in their approach to scripture that um, they're like, well, in this story, it says that 3,000 went to war. But when they retold the story over here, it said 300 went to war. And that's obviously a typographical, you know, and it's just like, okay, so like, but they couldn't possibly actually even say it's typographical error. So then they're like, well, actually, what it meant is there was 3,000 and 300s, and it was two slightly different wars happening at the same time, and one was writing from this side, and one was, you know, and they just do all sorts of different things. And what we don't realize is these two sets of stories were written about the same events at completely different times to a completely different group. And so one set is written to Israel before they go into exile. So do you remember when Babylon came in and they um, they split up Israel, they took um, two-thirds of Israel out of Israel, they brought in a whole bunch of people into Israel, they intermarried them so they couldn't even truly say they were like pure Israelis, they were like this mongrel race, and then they took a whole bunch of people into Babylon and like intermarried them, and they just had all these different things, they introduced all these false gods, and they just really messed things up. Well, before that there was all these prophecies so if you read through these histories it's god's gonna um build a messiah through the line of the kings you know there's gonna be this great king that's gonna govern the whole world and he's gonna come through the lines of david and um and solomon and 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 then he's gonna come to israel into jerusalem and jerusalem will be his base and the temple will be greater than ever you know all these different prophecies and all of a sudden when you see what happens all the king's line are killed Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Israel isn't even a nation anymore. So all of a sudden you've got all this story and all these promises and all this prophecy. And you've got a people group that are stuck in exile for years and years and years going, man, we have no hope at all. Because all our hope has been dashed, has been destroyed. But what happens is, um, excuse me, a group of um scholars and priests and rabbis and we don't really know exactly the the schools that were involved in this uh schools are groups of people that write um passages in the bible um and so we don't know exactly what that looked like but a group of people in the time of the exile thought right hold on god is still god god is still big and god's promises are god's promises but is it possible we heard his promise and interpreted it wrong is it possible that, yes, there's a Messiah coming and, yes, he's going to come in the line of the kings, but not in the way we think? What could that mean and what could that look like? And is it possible that, yes, he's going to set us up as a nation that's going to rule over the whole world, but could it look different than it just being Israel being a nation? Could it look different to that? Could it look different to there being a temple in Jerusalem the way we think there's a temple in Jerusalem? And so they started to look at what God said and what they said God said. Because there's sometimes a big difference, isn't there? You ever hear from God and you're like, oh, God's saying this. And then you go do it and you're like, oh, that went really badly. I think God actually meant this. And I added a whole bunch of ideas to what it could mean. And so what we find is actually that the story written in exile is written to give a people in exile hope that God's promises are still there. Maybe we misinterpreted it. And so they rewrite their history focusing on what did God actually say? And how could it actually still come about so we have hope and so we have a future? So which one's right? Well, you might say, well, probably the second one, because the first one really can't happen because everything got ruined and things like that. But they're both right, 
because they're not written to us about our future or, you know, and they're not written to describe exact historical events and how they happened. They're written to a people to encourage them and to speak life and to guide them and to show the significance of the events that are happening in their lives. And in that, if we look at it in context and we take a step back and go, that's how God spoke to those people then. What does it mean for me over here? That becomes very relevant to our lives. That becomes even that example I give, like how often do we hear God and totally misinterpret it? When actually, if we took a moment and said, well, what did God actually say? And what did I want him to say? And what did he actually say? So what could it actually mean? Um, big, big difference, right? We, we use an example when we were talking about hearing God's voice. So if God says, um, keep China on your heart. And you go, right, I'm packing my bags. I bought a first class ticket. I'm going to China. And God's like, oh, man, I was meaning for him to work in this company and start sending Bibles to China and, you know, help some missionaries and maybe visit once a year all right, we'll work with him moving to China, but that's really not what I had in mind, right? And so, and it's only afterwards you start thinking, man, he did only say keep China in mind. He didn't say move and pack up everything. Yeah, and and we do these sort of things all the time. And so there's lots of relevance in these scriptures that we can pull out of, but the danger is us looking at it as like, this is a historical accurate text of like how it all happens. Well, the danger is when you have two stories that are the same story, but they have different details, we start to go, oh, we can't trust the Bible. And it's like, no, you can't trust the Bible to be a historical documentation of how something happened thousands of years ago before people took accurate documentation. Yeah, that's probably true. Correct. You know, well, you can't trust the Bible that it's uh, talking about the world being created in six days because I believe in science and I believe it's going it, to, it took much longer. Yeah, probably true. You can't trust people 6,000 years ago who were praying to a sun god that it would come back the next day when it went down. You probably can't trust them to give you a detailed record of how long the earth took to form. I'm guessing, right? Like, these aren't geologists. They're pagan, um, you know, Bronze Age people. So, yeah, probably a good idea not to put scientific discovery on the Bible. Probably a good idea not to decide whether the Earth is flat or round based on the Bible. You know what I mean? Because that's not what it's for. You know, and we bring 21st century questions. So, the whole thing about evolution and how old the Earth is, like... We bring a 21st century question to the Bible that was written thousands of years ago. So the, the Genesis story, we talked about why was it written? It's written so that we know God is good and we know we are good as his people. But then 21st century, we go, oh, the, the world is probably roughly, you know, 6 billion years old. And, you know, the universe is 13.7 and, you know, all these different things. We're like, we've got some pretty good evidence across many branches of science that seems to suggest that. But the Bible says it was created in six days, and so I guess it's wrong. It has to be six days. So how are we going to redefine all this science? Like, maybe just take a step back and go, well, probably the Bible wasn't trying to tell you how many days the world was made. You know, that would be how someone would fix uh, and, and still uh, hold to the scientific um, discovery or view. It doesn't mean that the Bible is irrelevant anymore, because that's not the point the Bible was written about. People thousands of years ago weren't going, I wonder how long it took to create the world. That, that just wasn't their question. And so we have to be asking the same questions. We have to be looking at the context of the people. Because if we don't look at the context of the people, we open ourselves up to really warping the scripture and actually warping our lives. I mean, you see a lot of really negative fallout from that sort of stuff. You see um, parents taking their kids out of school and teaching them at home when they don't have an education. So you see parents that didn't get through high school 
teaching their high school age kids in certain states in America where that's legal and they're not even learning proper maths and English because their parents don't know it but it's so that we don't get that evil rotten science that disagrees with our Bible and I'm like come on like just teach your kids that we stayed in six days and ignore that one bit of science or something but at least give them a proper education and so there can be really negative fallout sometimes when we when we look at the Bible in a, in a warped or twisted way um, and again, I, I don't mind if you believe the Bible was uh, the, the Bible was made in six days. That's very unlikely. Um, but if you believe the uh, the scripture, uh, oh my gosh, my brain, the world was created in six days. I don't mind that. That's really not a problem for me. Um, you know, I look at it like when Jesus told the parable about the man who sowed uh, seeds, and some was on bad rocks, and some was on good rocks. And you know, what was his point? His point was like, you know, where you plant seeds, be careful. You know, like water. You know, all these. He had some significant points in that parable. If someone in the crowd stood up and was like, "Jesus, I've got a question." He's like, "Yeah, what's your question?" He's like, "What kind of seeds were they? Like, what's wrong? They've missed the point." Jesus wasn't telling an accurate, detailed story of like, you know, like he was telling a story to make an actual point, the message. And they missed the message because they're fixated on the details. What kind of rocks were they? How soft was soil? Like, not important for the actual message. And so we often go, well, how many days? And could one day mean a thousand years? Or could a day mean this? And, you know, it's like that you're kind of missing the point here, guys. The point is God is good and so are you. And so I talked about... Um, like in the last session, I talked about Enuma Elish and how it contrasts with um, Genesis, right? And I talked about um, the Epic of Gilgamesh and how that contrasts with some of Genesis, like the flood story against the flood story. There's a there's a, a Babylonian uh, story in history that contrasts the uh, a, a ta- sorry a Tower of Babel story that contrasts with our Tower of Babel story. And there's all these different contrasts. But you look at the the point actually is often much less the detail than the contrast if we actually look at it in the context of who was originally reading it. So the flood story. Um, it's really easy for us to go, man, that is pretty messed up, right? I mean, do you ever stop and think about the flood story? Because it's really messed up. Like, God kills everyone. Like, I don't think if we really stop and think that through. Everyone. Eight people got through. Everyone died. It's very hard to paint God as good in that story. Really hard like really hard because like you're like well yeah it was only the good people that survived the evil people died and like, well come on surely there were some babies kicking about and like toddlers I mean do we really think they were inherently evil and couldn't possibly have been saved if you put them on the ark and got them through really and also what about all the animals right I mean if nothing else like I'm not like super hippie animal lover I do love animals but like I'm like he saved two of each animal like he killed millions of animals who did nothing wrong and you're like, ah, it's kind of pretty messed up. Like, I mean, it's just a kind of messed up story. But when you stop and you think, well, actually, hold on, what is the purpose of this story? The purpose of this story is to contrast what other people thought about the flood already. Because the flood had already happened, because we have a story about the flood 1,300 years before Genesis 6 was written. So the story is already there. One day, the gods woke up too many times in the night and went, we're so mad, we can't sleep, let's flood the whole earth and kill everyone. Then we'll just be able to get a good night's sleep. That's the story, and that's why everyone thought that big flood that happened in the past happened. And so someone comes along, writing Genesis, and goes, maybe we could describe this a little bit better. And so their story is, God is good, he's holy, he's perfect, he's righteous. And so he sent a flood to make sure the world could be righteous and holy. It was getting too evil, it was getting too whatever. Now, 
even within that, there's a couple of ways you can take that. You can take that as that is who God is. And even compared to the old story, I mean, that's a really good God in comparison, right? Um, but for me, I'm like, it's still a pretty messed up God. And so I might even challenge, is that uh, explanation of, well, this is who we see God to be right now. And this is what we think the answer could be. Because remember, this, this flood happened at least a thousand plus years before the person was writing it down. Okay, so they weren't there at all. Um, and so are they writing a story to explain what happens as they understand God to be good? Is it necessarily a commentary on what God is actually like? Because to me, I'm like, I don't think it's a very good commentary on what God's like. When I look at Jesus, I don't see Jesus flooding the whole earth and killing everyone. Like, I don't see that being God. In fact, if you actually look at just God in the Old Testament many times versus Jesus, you're left with a lot of problems, right? Do an exercise with me. Um, Close your eyes. And I want you to really picture this. Like, I really, I I mean it. Like, I really want you to try and, I don't know how good your imagination is, but I really want you to try and get there. Because this is is pretty um, big stuff that I think we gloss over a lot of passages in Scripture, okay? So what I want you to do is I want you to imagine you're a, a young Israelite man, Okay. And you are going into the promised land, okay? So your, your parents and your grandparents, they came out of Egypt and they, uh, f- they witnessed these incredible miracles and they wandered around the, the wilderness and, and most of them have died off and you're about to go into the promised land, this, this amazing place that God has promised you, which is flowing from milk and honey, which apparently you're really excited about, milk and honey. Um, and... You know, there's houses that you're going to get free houses that you don't even have to build and they're going to be amazing. And you're going to have all these crops and farmlands that you didn't have to cultivate and grow. And it's just going to be amazing. And what's not only that, when you go into these lands, the people that come against you, they're, they're not even going to put up a, a good fight. You're going to take them all out and you are going to be um, completely unharmed. You, your friends, your family are completely unharmed in all this battle that's going to happen. And so... God says to you, go in, I want you to take out everyone, man, woman, child, wipe them all out. This is your land now. And you go, this is so exciting. We've been wandering in the wilderness for so long. I grew up in the wilderness. I've never known anything but the desert. And I'm so excited about having my own home, my own family, my, uh, a place to call mine, a community, a uh, um, uh, farmland, something to cultivate and call my own and grow my own food for my family, not, not rely on manna appearing every day or quail. And so you go out to battle and you're fighting the Canaanites or whichever group you're fighting and they fall left and right and center. They're just falling at your sword. It's easy. It's crazy. It's like fighting with a toddler almost. You know, it's just like, it's so easy. They're dying left, right and center. And you are just completely unharmed. You're, you look to your left and your right and, and you, all your friends, uh, they're fighting as well. And none of them are falling. None of them are down. None of them are even scratched. It's completely flawless. And so at the end, you've got this great victory and you go into the city and you think, right, I'm going to pick up my house. And so... You know, it's a, it's a hot climate and you're thinking, I'd like a nice, big, cool house with those big stone walls that keep it cool and maybe a pool. That'd be quite nice, you know, um, something with big bedrooms for the kids and, and, and a nice bedroom for the wife, you know, and me. And so you're checking out the houses and you find this beautiful house and you, you wander through and you're like, oh my gosh, my wife is going to love this. The kids are going to love it. And so you wander up the stairs and you're checking out the bedrooms and you look in the master bedroom and it's beautiful and you walk through some of those bedrooms and you get to the last bedroom, you open the door of this box bedroom and in it is a 17 year old girl who's pregnant and a two year old boy sitting next to her on the bed and they're terrified they're cowered together huddling in a ball and they're crying and terrified you can see they are so so scared 
what do you do? Because we know the answer to this question, but we don't like the answer to this question. What do you do? And so, you know what you have to do. Maybe you pull out that sword again. It's maybe still covered in blood, probably the blood of this person's loved ones. And you raise it, and you think, maybe I can kill all three of them in one swipe, make it a bit easier for me. Hopefully she doesn't put up a fight, and it gets really bloody, and I'm hacking her to death, and the toddler doesn't run, and I'm whacking her. And all of a sudden, the door behind you opens. And you look behind you, and Jesus has walked into the room. What do you do? Because if Jesus is God, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, the answer hasn't changed. You still have to hack this girl and her toddler and her unborn baby to death. And Jesus is going to be cheering you on. You can open your eyes. <laughs> that make you uncomfortable? Because we gloss over that passage. We're like, oh yeah, they kill every man, woman, and child, and that's fine. Yeah, 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 whatever. Oh, good, we got to the good bit. They get the promised land, and it's nice, and it's cozy. No, they killed every man, woman, and child. And when Jesus walks in the room and he's standing there next to you and you're holding that blood-stained sword and you've got this terrified teenage girl that's pregnant with a tiny little toddler and you're about to kill them, can you honestly see Jesus going, yeah, kill them. Kill those evil people. You're my people. They're evil. Kill them. Can you see that? Can you honestly see that? Can you honestly read through the Gospels and come to the conclusion that that is what Jesus would say? Because that was what God was saying to those people at that time. And God doesn't change. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It makes us uncomfortable, right? Because we're like, uh, I don't really know what to do with this now. So what are you telling me, Phil? Like, I'm kind of like, I, don't, I liked it when I didn't think about these passages. Go, ah, well, that was the old covenant. This is new covenant. Yeah, so has God changed? Has God different? Because covenant doesn't change God. It maybe changes us, but like, Either way, I don't really see Jesus hacking to death people in the Old Covenant. <laughs> Especially like an innocent, you know, unborn baby or a toddler. Maybe toddlers aren't so innocent, but an unborn baby, you know, they've done nothing yet. And so we're left going, what do we do with that? Like there's stuff in the Bible that's really uncomfortable. The stuff in the Bible that causes us pause for thought, or it should do at least, and we should sit there going, is that really the God I worship? Because honestly, stop and throw, throw, throw Christianity out the window for a second, right? If you could somehow imagine, you're not a Christian, you're just some regular Joe Bloggs. If I came in and said, there's a God and he would kill that family, do you want to worship him? But he's not, he's not really like that. He's, he's, like, he's good, but he did do that. Do you really want to spend eternity with that guy? Because if, even if it's that somehow God changed, well, if God changed, can he change back? 
it's a messed up story any way you slice it and maybe like you'll get some extreme sort of fundamental Calvinism or whatever and be like ah oh, well you know like um, you know they were just predestined to go to hell forever oh well that's great that's a wonderful God as well maybe that makes me feel much better right so God's creating people that are just going to go burn forever ah oh, nice good God sign me up right or maybe you get um, well you know like maybe the, the universalists might go well you know they probably go to heaven and spend eternity there so in the grand scheme of things it's not so bad and I'm like I don't know if I want to worship a god who in the grand scheme of things isn't so bad like that would still hack apart a child so what do you do with it let me um, pause there right? I'm going to pause on that and I'm going to jump back a little bit Let's look at when Israel started. Do you you remember Israel started with Abraham? Abraham is the father of Israel. So we often think of, you know, like Judaism starts with Adam and Eve and it just blossoms as we keep going and we read the stories. But actually not at all, really. Adam and Eve, first of all, weren't very great at their job. Um, But they start and then you've got Cain and Abel and only one of them went so well. Um, And probably a lot more kids and, you know, whatever. And all that's blossoming and happening. But actually, as we go through it, there's only a couple of people in the story that are doing well. Most of the people in the story, not so well. Because by the time we get to Abraham, he's the one guy that God's going to be on his side. And you've got entire cities going on at this point. Abraham left a city. So there's a lot of people on the planet and they're not doing so great. And this is after God flooded the earth. You know what I mean? So like we've rebuilt the whole earth again, you know? Um, And let me kind of just paint a picture of what it was like at that time. Because I think we forget, like it's easy for us to read the Bible and think, you know, it was almost like, it's easy to think, it was like our time. It wasn't because they were like, you know, a bit uncivilized. They were living in like kind of Mediterranean style houses. But we still kind of think of it a bit like our time. And we forget that this was this this time, Abraham's time, was mid to late Bronze Age. It's a long time ago. Long time ago. And in this time, there was quite a bizarre kind of like... It was a weird world to live in, okay? If you threw yourself in that world, you would be a god on the spot. Just because you knew really basic things. Like, I probably can't teach you very well based on my primary school knowledge of how rain forms and falls. But my rough recollection of it would make me a god amongst these people. They had no idea why water fell out of the sky. I mean, they knew it was when the clouds gathered, but they had no idea why a cloud's here today and not tomorrow. And you know what? I actually need the clouds to form and rain to call because if the rain doesn't fall, I don't have any food. I didn't even know how that worked. They'd be like, well, I've figured out over time that when there's a drought, no food comes out the ground when I put the food in the ground. But when the rain comes every now and again, more food comes. So I know I need rain for the food, but I have no idea how the food actually works. I just put stuff in the ground and it comes out magically more of it. Like, I mean, they knew nothing. I mean, and that's the, the more complex stuff. Like, I mean, we still kind of our minds get kind of blown by how a seed can become like, you know, this great amount of food or whatever, or a plant. And I mean, that's quite mental to us, you know? Um, but like, they were like, when the sun went down at night, they literally would worship the sun God and pray that he would beat the God of the night and come back tomorrow. Because that was how it was. The sun was at war with the moon. The sun was at war. The day was at war with the night. And the night was winning right now. But hopefully the sun would overcome again and and have another victorious spell. These guys were crazy. 
Okay, in a comparison to where we're at now, right? You know what I mean? Like, we joke about people like a thousand years ago thinking the earth was flat. These people, like, these people were a whole nother level. They're not like flat earthers. They're like, they don't understand anything. I mean, they really don't understand anything. And what's interesting about human nature is we crave to understand stuff. We want to have safety in knowing how it works, knowing what's going on. And so typically what we do as humans, when we don't understand something, and we can't get that meaning and that certainty, is we just put it on to a god of some sort, a being. Oh, can you grab the door, Dan? Thanks. Oh. Hey, Dave. How you doing? Uh, yeah. Sorry for interrupting. No, you're fine. It's great. Just delivering some goodies. Thank you so much. Have a good one. So what we do is we kind of give gods um, power over it. So what we do is we have a sun god and a night god. And that at least makes us feel a bit better that something out there is in charge of this. Because if there's something in charge of this, maybe we can twist their arm or make them more powerful or at least get them on our side. So if we worship the sun god and the sun god's on our side, well, we've figured out as well that sun is needed for good crops. You know, when it's cloudy all the time and there's too much rain, it doesn't work either. We need a bit of sun. And so, you know, we, we figured out little bits and pieces, but we're still not really sure how the heck anything works. And so we create gods for everything. You think of, um, think about 130 years ago, one in five children died at birth because we didn't know we should wash our hands when we were delivering babies. Like, that's 150 years ago, 130 years ago, in fact. And one in five babies died because of that. Can you imagine what the odds were 5,000 years ago? I imagine they weren't better than one in five, right? Because we really didn't know. I mean, at that point, we actually understood a little bit of how life developed and how uh, um, a fetus grew and how it like, you know, came out. And, you know, lots of things were understood by medicine at that point. Not much, but a lot. Um, go back 5,000 years ago, people were like, they've no idea what the heck is going on at any point. They figured out how to get pregnant because that's kind of fun to figure out. Right, we're we're well worth we're, we're we're well willing to put in the practice there and figure out that part. But beyond that, they're not really sure what's going on. And you know what? Sometimes it's a beautiful, healthy baby boy, but a lot of the time it doesn't go well, and we don't know why. Maybe the God of Life is angry with us because all this is happening because the God of Life or the God of Fertility or the God of you know we have gods for everything. God to the sea, God to the river, God to the valley, God to the hill, God to the sun, God to the rain, gods of metal, gods of fire, gods of earth. You know, we have gods of everything. And can you imagine, like, I, I use that example of giving birth because it's such a huge thing. Can you imagine the pain involved in getting pregnant and being excited about being a, a mom or a dad? And it doesn't go well. The pain and the unknowing, like they're just, I don't know what's going on. And of course you're going to try and ascribe meaning and purpose and s some sort of certainty to it. And so you think, well, it's, it's the God of life is mad. And well, if the God of life is mad, what are you going to want to do? Make it happy, right? Please it. And so then you start going, well, how do I please this God? And so we can um, study all throughout the world. You can look at... Um, the Americas, South, North, you can look at Asia, you can look at um, Africa, Europe, all throughout the world, we can actually track the evolution of sacrifice. And so sacrifice um, started quite um, 
tamely, really. Um, it looked like we built small altars and offered up um, simple things. You know, maybe we burned some grain, burned some um, something that's valuable to us. You know, hey God, we want to give you some food to show you just how valuable you, you are to us, and we want to please you. And so we burned some food, and the, somehow we thought gods are up there because we can go, we can dig down. So the gods have to be up there, and so we would burn stuff because that's the only way you can get something up is you know create some smoke. Um, and so, because, you know, we're still worshipping a sun god, we haven't invented flight or rockets. Um, and so we're burning some grain, and the grain s- smell goes up, and maybe it pleases God. And so the next time we get pregnant, maybe it's a healthy boy. But maybe it's not. And what's the problem with burning grain to please the god of life? Can you see a problem with it? It's got nothing to do with whether we have a healthy kid, and there isn't a God of life, quote unquote. Right? I mean, they're offering a sacrifice to nothing about something that is probably very natural, right? It's probably simple things like we didn't wash our hands when we gave birth, or we haven't eaten a very healthy diet while we were pregnant, or we fell over at some point during the pregnancy. You know what I mean? Probably really simple things, but they didn't understand and ascribe some great meaning. And so if it doesn't go well, what do we think? We've not pleased God. Or if, we, if it does go well, maybe we think, great, it works. We can do that again next time. But at some point, it's not going to go well, right? Because it's not always going to go well because we're praying to a God that isn't there. And so if it doesn't go well, what do you do? You think, well, they're not pleased with this offering. Maybe I should offer something more. And so you start looking around thinking, well, what's more valuable to me than some food? And you look over there at that sheep or goat and you think, all right, Doris, we're going to burn you. Um, so you get over, you kill the sheep, you chuck it on the altar. Maybe you have to build the altar a bit bigger now. Burn it up. And your family would be heartbroken at this, right? Because this is a lot of food, maybe some milk from the goat or whatever. You know, and this is like, this is a, a big sacrifice. But what's the problem? We've not changed the solution. Is still, we're praying to something that isn't there. And so maybe it works sometimes, but most often it probably doesn't. And so we think, well, we need to up the ante again. And so we look around, what's more valuable? Maybe the family cow. And so we start burning something really valuable to us. So we offer up the cow. But again, doesn't change anything. So we up the ante. And what happens next? Maybe the God really wants something serious, like maybe a person. And we can see this again in the evolution of sacrifices throughout all over the world. We did this. It was just kind of this natural human response, it seems. Um, And the first people to be sacrificed... Disabled people. Why? Couldn't fight for themselves. Couldn't defend themselves. Maybe we thought they're not as valuable, not as contributing to society or whatever it was. But we started to, you know, grab Steve, who's on crutches right now. Can't defend himself. Kill him, stick him on a fire, burn him, throw him in a volcano, whatever it was, you know, cut his head off and roll it down a hill. Like all the different things that we, we did. But people became the sacrifice. But again, we're not changing anything here. So maybe it's a, well, God wants a pure sacrifice, not a disabled one, because that's how they solve things. Um, okay, well, let's offer up a pure sacrifice. So we start, you know, killing human beings. Often people we loved, because that was more valuable, bigger sacrifice. And in every culture, every situation, the evolution gets to one point. Do you know what the point is? Do you know where we're going with this evolution of sacrifice? We're going to the most valuable thing you have. What's your most valuable thing? 
your firstborn. So important to you. More important than even yourself because it represents your bloodline, who you are, everything about you. It would keep you living in the, the annals of time. It would carry on your family line. It would take all that you have and bring it on to the next generation. And you would. And this firstborn was the one that took everything. They inherited the whole farm. They inherited all the money. They inherited all the cattle. They looked after all the rest of the siblings and the grandkids. And they were the, the most valuable and they were stuck on an altar and you'd slit their neck you'd stab them whatever it was you'd burn them and you would offer up to the gods now what's the problem with the firstborn being your offering can you see a problem in this world where there are so many different gods a god for rain a god for birth a god for rivers a god for farming a god for this a god for that a god for a fire if you're a blacksmith the god of fire is really important you know if you're a farmer the god of rain is really important if you're a uh, uh, a mom who can't give birth the god of life is really important maybe a god of fertility if you're in barren you know but there's all these different gods and how many firstborn kids do you have especially in this example where we're trying to give birth right i mean that's a real like that's a real compromise right i'm really struggling to get pregnant and have more kids so i'm going to kill my only kid Right, But the problem is, when you have one firstborn son, the one ultimate sacrifice you can make, you're going to have to pick which God gets it, right? And that's what they would do. They would pick the most high God. And that's what his phrase, you see it in the Bible a lot, don't you? The most high God. But they would pick this most high God, and that was the one that would get their sacrifice. And so this is the culture that Abraham is in. When God shows up to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to leave the ways of your people and your family and your culture, and I want you to come with me and head back east. He's saying, this stuff, all this stuff that's going on, I want you to come away from that and do something different. But what's interesting is, what does, a- what does God say to Abraham? He says, Abraham, I want to be your most high God. That saying's really significant now, isn't it? Because Abraham isn't, you know, worshipping a God over here and God shows up and says actually I'm God and I, I want you to worship me or he's not worshipping God and God goes oh you're, you don't understand who I am I'm going to show you who I really am but you've always been worshipping me all along he goes and says hey Abraham you've got all these gods and you probably have a most high God as well but I want you to leave all that and your family tradition and I want, I want to be your most high God I want to be the God above all other gods it's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't introduce God to the Israelites as a monotheistic um, religion, as an as a, as a individual God. He just says, hey, I'm the most important God initially. It actually takes quite a while before he goes, by the way, I'm the only God as well. But he works with Abraham apparently with like what he could probably understand or con- contextualize. You know, So he lives in a world where there's thousands of gods to suddenly go, there's no gods. You'd be like, wait, what? You know, There's only one? What? What? And so he just goes, look, I'm the most important one. Just come and follow me, listen to me, do what I say, and you'll be fine. And so Abraham follows God, and he walks with God for um, 15, 20 years, and, uh, and eventually, after quite a few ups and downs and some big mistakes and some small mistakes, we have Isaac. Abraham has this son, and he's got these amazing promises, doesn't he? You're going to have descendants as many as the sands of the sea, and like, you know, you're going to... Um, you're going to be this huge nation that blesses all the other nations and it's amazing and um, and he has this one son and what does God do? God shows up and says, hey Abraham, it's me, remember? Most high God, 
What do most high gods need? What do most high gods expect? Firstborn son. So when we read that story, it seems so crazy and barbaric, doesn't it? We read it and it's like, one day Abraham was like hanging out in a field and, Je- and Moses, uh, Moses, Jesus, gosh, I'm really struggling today. This is what happens when you get in at midnight from a flight. Um, and God shows up and says, hey, Abraham, it's me, God. Remember all the promises, different things. I've blessed you lots of ways. Uh, I'm going to need that firstborn son now. And we read that and go, God is crazy. He's a psycho. He's so brutal. He's awful. What kind of God is this? More than that, we think, wait, Abraham, whoa, this guy's a terrible dad. What kind of dad is this? Because Abraham, he doesn't say, no way, I won't do that. I won't follow you. Or he doesn't say, oh God, is there any other reason, uh, any other thing I can do? Is there anything else I can offer you? Or he doesn't even say, oh, well, how are we going to do this? And what does it look like? He just goes, okay. And the next day he just goes off and does it. Like he knows where, he knows when, he knows how, he knows all the, the rituals and now you have that context, you can see why he knows where and how and when and how it's done, because that's what was done in that culture. You killed your firstborn. But I think there's something quite significant to this story in light of that, isn't there? That Abraham this whole time, knowing that this was his most high God, waiting for that firstborn son, when he has his firstborn son, you know in the back of his head is probably this one thing, isn't there? I'm going to have to offer up this son Isaac to this God. And what's interesting is God leaves him a while as well because Isaac, we often think of Isaac in the children's Bible story, Isaac's getting walked along as a toddler or something. Isaac's actually probably somewhere between the age of 25 and 35 when this happens, which is totally mental if you think about it, right? 120 year old, Abraham, 25 year old. And he's going, all right, come up the mountain, we're doing a sacrifice. And then not only that, he, he, so he's like, oh, well, what are we sacrificing? Oh, God will provide. It's fine. And we get there. And he even ties down Isaac and Isaac's on. Like, if you think about a 120-year-old and a 25-year-old, Isaac was pretty willing. Isaac really went with his father on this because I'm pretty sure a 25-year-old, the prime of life, could probably have overpowered a 120-year-old. Probably could have said, uh, sorry, dad, I'm out of here. So that actually opens up even more. It's amazing. But what, what, I, what my point in that is, Abraham's had this in the back of his head for 20 plus years. This boy that I love, that I've been adoring my whole life, it's the, it's the picture of the promise that God gave me. He's this boy that I love. He looks just like me. He's my kid. He's you know, mine and Sarah's, my, my, my favorite wife of all the wives. <laughs> you know? But this is my boy who I love. And in the back of his head is, but most high gods, they expect a sacrifice. It's coming one day. And so one day it does. And God says, Abraham, now's the time. And so they go up the mountain and he's about to kill his son. And suddenly it brings us into a whole new light because God shows up, doesn't he? And he says, wait. And what's his message to Abraham? More than anything, what is he saying? He's saying, Abraham, I'm not like the other gods. I am not like all these other gods that you think exist. I don't look for some human sacrifice. I'm not this barbaric god that expects you to kill your own family. And he offers a ram, doesn't he? And then we see actually sacrifice shifts in the Bible and it focuses on animals. 
and actually God gives some laws about animals and grain and you can offer up a pigeon or two or you know a dove or I'm always fascinated by that how do you capture a dove and kill it you know I mean I'm, I'm like I guess we're just so far removed from these times that, that there are people that can capture doves but I'm like I don't even know how you begin to do that um, <laughs> I guess yeah but you, someone had to catch some at the beginning <laughs> yeah um, but it's just like it's fascinating to me that all these different things but what's interesting is the law that God gives with these five different sacrifices is contrasted with the laws that already exist. So much like Genesis is a story about things where there were already stories, the law God gives is very similar to the laws that already exist. And there's already laws about how you sacrifice and how you please the gods. And they're pretty grim. You know, these are not children's stories. Well, they are, unfortunately, stories about children. You kill children. That's how you please God. And in God's laws, he's like, hey, you can uh, offer up some grain. If that doesn't do it for you, you don't think that's enough, you can offer up a sheep. That's not going to work for you. You can kill a cattle. You know, there's this escalation, and actually only one of the sacrifices is required. And after that, he goes, well, if you don't believe that's covered your sin, you can offer something else. But he never allows it to escalate beyond cattle. It's really interesting. And so if we actually compare them, what he's doing is not maybe saying, I want you to kill things. What he's saying is, can we stop killing kids? And actually, as time goes on, we see different opinions on sacrifice in the Bible. David says, God doesn't want sacrifice. Um, Jeremiah, he says, God has never wanted sacrifice. And there's coming a day where there will no longer be sacrifices. Hosea says, God doesn't want sacrifice. Amos says God has never wanted sacrifice. So you look at these prophets and you go, well, do they have a copy of the Bible? Because God wants sacrifice. He says he wants sacrifice. But there seems to be, as time goes on, people challenging, what is God really doing here? And actually in time, we see Jesus shows up and Jesus says, I'm your sacrifice. No more sacrifices. In fact, Jesus is very clear on the fact that there will be no more sacrifices. He destroys, he says the temple will be destroyed. Not only that, he goes into the temple and quotes Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7 is where Jeremiah says, God doesn't want sacrifices. He never has and he never will. And there's coming a time where that will end. And then he goes on in that passage. And in that passage, he quotes, you've made my temple a den of robbers and thieves and all this different stuff. And so when Jesus goes into the temple and he clears out the temple, he quotes Jeremiah 7. He's not being, a lot of people use that passage as saying God can be angry and aggressive and you can be violent because Jesus is violent. He's not doing that. What's he doing? He's doing his prophetic act of clearing out the temple, getting rid of all these animals right? That are being sacrificed, being sold to be sacrificed. He quotes Jeremiah 7, which is all about how God is, doesn't want sacrifices and there's coming a time when a sacrifice will end. And he's saying, this is it, guys. This is the end. We're, we're finished with this stuff. I don't want any more of these sacrifices. And this is it. This is what Jeremiah talked about. There's coming a time that there's no going to be any more sacrifices. This is that time. And before long, he becomes the sacrifice, which we offered up. We killed God to please God right I mean that's what the Israelites did they thought that this man was an offense to God and was a, 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 as horrendous to God and he was going to destroy the whole nation so it was better for the whole nation to kill this one person to please God that's like the definition of a sacrifice so we end up sacrificing God to God <laughs> talk about screwing things up eh 
But he comes back and he says, hey, no worries, peace be with you. First words, peace be with you. Can you imagine you killed God and he comes back and your thoughts are God is violent. Your thoughts are God likes killing things. Your thoughts are when you screw up, God kills. Can you imagine God shows up after you kill him? And you're like, oh, we made a big mistake here. You're going to be really happy when his first words are, peace be with you. (laughs) But then Paul goes on and he evolves sacrifice even further, doesn't he? He says, sacrifice has nothing to do with death. God doesn't want death. God wants a living sacrifice. And so we see this evolution throughout the scriptures. Look at um, some of the other stuff that we see evolution in. Um, so we talked about the, the how the laws are, um, there was already laws that existed. So, you know, in the, the Bible where it says an eye for an eye, have you ever heard that? And you're just like, man, God was like pretty brutal, right? I'm with Gandhi. An eye for an eye leaves the world blind. But God is like an eye for an eye. Someone cuts at your eye, you cut out their eye. Have you ever thought that's like pretty brutal? Even by Old Testament standards, like just cutting out eyes left, right, and center, it just seems like a bad idea. Um, well, the law already existed. An eye for an eye already existed in the Mesopotamian laws, but it was very different. So the law was, if someone causes you to lose your eye, there's three different responses. If they are of a higher class than you and they're richer, then you are to ask them to pay you for the eye. So they can pay you. And there's even a price, like this is the price for an eye. Okay? wasn't much considering it was an eye, you know? Um, And people seem to be losing eyes a lot in this culture. So, I mean, if it's your second eye, you're really screwed. Um, If they're of the same class as you, same social standing, then you can take their eye out, right? So you get your spoon out and you pop out their eye or whatever. But if they're of a lower class than you, right? If they're poor or not as important, right? As social standing, you're to get them in front of the people and stone them to death. So when God shows up in the Old Testament and says, hey guys, I've got a rule for you. An eye for an eye, period. He's not saying very much about eyes, actually. He's saying much more than what do we do when we lose an eye. What's he saying? I want some equality, guys. I don't want this caste system where if someone's rich and they screw over you, you just go, oh, it's fine. doesn't matter. I'm sorry. You know, sorry for letting you cut my eye out. Maybe you could pay me a little bit, you know. And if someone's poorer than you and they cause you to lose an eye, you don't just kill them. What's he saying? He's saying everyone should be treated as an equal. We are all equals on this planet. It's actually a remarkably progressive and liberal statement. But that's not what God wants, right? And this is the important thing is we see just because God says something or does something or introduces something, it doesn't mean he wants it. It means he's working with people where they're at. Because what is his actual finished statement on when people cut your eyes out? Jesus shows up, doesn't he? And he says, you guys have heard this statement, an eye for an eye. And you've got to be thinking when we read it, we're like, yeah, you told us that, right? Because you're God and God told us an eye for an eye. So he's like, he almost says it disparagingly as well. He's like, you know that saying, an eye for an eye, terrible statement. It's like, you, you said that? What? And he's like, well, I say to you, turn the other cheek. So what does that mean? Someone plucks out your eye, you turn around and go, that's okay, I forgive you. That's a pretty radical statement, but it was a long way away from if someone plucks your eye out, you can kill them if they're poorer than you. Or if you know, like, We took a long while to get to treating everyone completely differently based on how 
good they were as far as the status of the society went to we're treating everyone with forgiveness and acceptance and love and there was some middle grounds to go through same with sacrifice we went from killing babies to living a righteous life unto god that's a pretty big jump and so he takes people on a journey and so it's really important that when we approach scripture we don't just open up the bible and go ooh someone loses an eye i can just cut out an eye because well hold on, hold on there's more to that that particular story we can get to the end and it's about turning the other cheek or you open the bible and go all right i better bring a goat to church or well, not a goat because that's unclean i better bring a sheep to church and murder it the pastor will be well up for that right that's where uh, you need a new church uh, car- carpet uh, right because if we actually did that so we open up and went well this is what god wants because it says god wants this we'd be in some serious trouble we have to read the whole process the whole story how god deals with people as he goes on and so what's my point i'll I'll wrap up my point we can talk about this a bit more as time goes on but my point in this is there's a meta narrative that that means there's a there's a great story that kind of overarches all of scripture isn't there and so we can we can fix it on one part or another or another but we actually need to know how it's planning out. What direction is it heading? How is it going to come about? Imagine, you know, there's five of us in this room. Imagine I get a hundred piece jigsaw. You know puzzles? Yeah, they cut up and you make a picture. So I get a hundred piece uh, puzzle and I put the box away and I just give you one piece each. And I said, draw me the picture. How good do you think your picture would be? It might be a really good picture, but it's probably not going to be very accurate, right? It's not going to look like the box because you've got one piece to look for, right? So you might look at it and go, oh, I've got a tree. And another person might be like, well, I've got some water. Another person might go, well, I've got some people. And you think, well, it's clearly a forest because I've got a tree. And the other person go, well, it's clearly a picture of the sea because I've got some water. And another person go, well, no, it's clearly a picture of people playing together because I've got people and they look like they're laughing. And maybe your pictures would be nice, but they'd be completely wrong, right? A picture of a forest or a picture of a sea or a picture of people playing isn't going to be what it is. But if you talk to each other, maybe, and you said, well, I've got a tree and you've got some water and I've got some people, you might suddenly be able to draw something a bit more like it, but you're still going to struggle with three pieces out of a hundred to get a very accurate picture of what we're talking about. But if I kept giving you out pieces bit by bit by bit, do you think your picture might come together a bit more? The more pieces of the puzzle I give you, the more you can probably start to draw something that looks a bit more like the box. Or at least you'd have the elements of it. They might be in the wrong place. Maybe you put the forest up in the top left rather than the bottom right. Maybe you draw water here instead of up over there. But you'd have the parts. But the easiest way to do this would be for me just to show you the box, right? I could just show you the picture. That would be much easier. And I think we forget that actually... This is exactly what happens in scripture. You know, John says in um, 1 John, he says, nobody has seen the Father except Jesus. Have you ever read that and thought, what a bunch of rubbish? Like, that's just a total lie. Like, it's just not true. Like, uh, it just infuriates me, right? On On a cursory glance, that is an absolute lie. Like, Oh, it just it, it blows my mind that people don't read that and go, wait, hold on, what? We just read it and we go, yeah, yeah, no one's seen the Father except Jesus. And it's like, no, lots of people saw the Father. 
loads and loads and loads. Adam and Eve, Enoch walked with him. Jacob wrestled with the guy. You can't wrestle him and not see him unless he was blind for the period of wrestling. Like um, Moses saw God. Moses uh, and his brother uh, Aaron and Miriam and the 74 elders of Israel saw God face to face, it says in Exodus. And again, and he saw him again in Numbers. And so you're like, well, they saw God. Samson's parents, they saw God face to face. So (laughs) Isaiah saw God. I mean, there's a lot of people that see God. And then John comes along, fancy John writing the Bible. No one's seeing God except Jesus. He's not fact-checked at all. You know, the guy should have read his Bible first. Now, I'm being a bit silly and facetious, but like, do you see that there's a disparity here between those all this stuff that's said in the Old Testament and this thing that John said. So what is John saying, right? Because either he's lying or he doesn't know the Bible or he's saying something different to the fact that nobody's seen the Father except Jesus. And I think his point is quite significant. So if you go back to the puzzle story, people all the way through the Old Testament encounter God. They experienced God. God met with them. They talked with him. They saw him. They, they engaged with him. They had amazing experiences of God. But they didn't see God in his fullness. Nobody has seen the Father except Jesus. It says that um, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the image of an invisible God. God was invisible. And he was handing out puzzle pieces. But we didn't have the box. And so we go, oh, wood. I know what that is. And maybe we were right, but maybe we put it in the wrong place. Sometimes we put it in the right place. Sometimes we were wrong entirely. But bit by bit by bit, as time goes on, as as humanity and especially the Israelites progress, they're learning more and more about God. They're engaging more and more with God as he continues to reveal himself and show more of himself. And bit by bit, he goes things like, hey, I don't really want sacrifice. That was just a stepping stone. So here's some more truths. And they go, oh, God doesn't want sacrifice. And then he gets a bit more and, whoa, there's coming a time where we don't even need to do this anymore. And so they're getting more and more of the puzzle. But Jesus comes along at the end and Jesus is the image of the box, right? He's the image of the invisible God. So all these pieces find meaning and find definition in Jesus. So you might look at your tree and go, oh, it's clearly a box about forests, right? And so someone has an encounter with God and God shows them one thing and they go, that's what God's about. He's all about this. He's all about this. You know, he's, he speaks to them through a bush and they go, God's all about, he just speaks in nature and I'm, I'm going to become this nature hippie. I'm going to rip off all my clothes and wander around in the desert for the rest of my life. And it's like, might have missed a few points there, right? Probably you'll have a great time, I'm sure. But like, you might have missed some stuff, Right? God multiplied this thing. So God's all about this. You know, like we, we fixate on different things and we still do that today in some ways in Christianity, right? The charismatics, we're all about healing. We're all about miraculous stuff. And, you know, other people are fundamental. Oh, we're all about mental knowledge and understanding God. And other people, are, oh, we're mystical. We're all about engaging with God and creation or, or just lying back on our, you know, and, and we fixate on one piece of the puzzle. But if we look at Jesus, we find context for our pieces, And so as we read through the Old Testament, we see things that happen and we go, oh, that's how it fits. I had it all the way down here and upside down. And oftentimes we pick up our piece of puzzle and we've actually added bits around it and drawn on it just to make it look good for us because that's the only piece we have. 
and actually we have to take a lot of that stuff we've added off to make it fit because we look at it and we look at the picture and go oh I've added a whole bunch of stuff to this encounter with God or experience with God so that I can build a framework around it but actually in the context of Jesus there's a bunch of stuff here that does not fit and is not compatible with who God is and this is why Jesus says if you've seen me you've seen the Father you see it's not Jesus comes and what he does one of the main reasons to kill him is he contradicts who they thought God was he shows them God is not like what you think he is like it's amazing to me read through the Old Testament and we go ah yes God's like this and we go wait no this was written by people that got God so wrong they killed him when he showed up in the beginning was the words and the word was God and he showed up and and his own people didn't know him even though they'd studied him Jesus uh, said to the Pharisees, he says, you guys know your scriptures better than anyone. You know all the Old Testament. You studied it your whole life waiting for the Messiah and I'm standing in front of you and you don't know me. What's he saying? He's saying, you are wrong about what God looks like. I am right. Maybe listen. And what they did was kill him, of course, because that was a much better solution. Um, But Jesus comes and he says, I have come to reinterpret Israel's view of God, to put it in context, to put it right. And so Jesus comes to re uh, to reframe God, Israel's view of God. And what's funny is Christianity often, what we do is we try and reframe Jesus to fit with Israel's view of God. Does that make sense? So, so often we look at the Old Testament and go, well, Jesus is like this. So God's like that. But he's also like this. And you go, well, if that isn't compatible with this, then no. But we can try and figure out what was the puzzle piece? What was God doing in that time? What was, how was he speaking to people? What was he doing? And in that, how do we see it in Jesus? But it has to fit in the picture. You know? And if you have a piece of uh, uh, the wrong puzzle book, uh, the, the wrong puzzle, the wrong jigsaw, it, it's not going it doesn't fit in Jesus. It goes over there. It's thrown away. Or if you've colored over it and made it your own picture or, you know, you've shaped it the way you want to, or you've tried to reshape the puzzle piece and it doesn't fit anymore, you need to reshape it back to what God originally was about and who he originally was. So I can't go into every single context of every single thing that God ever did in the Old Testament, obviously. But I just want to give you some context of how do we read scripture? We read scripture as an ongoing journey. We read scripture as an, a progression of God working with people and taking them on a journey. And you know what? The coolest thing about this, right? This is one of my favorite things is it's cool to see, wow, God does this for humanity, right? He works with us where we are and, and he journeys and he goes and he's still journeying with us, right? He's still working where we are. You look at slavery is a good example, right? So the slavery laws were very good compared to the Mesopotamian slavery laws, but they were still barbaric you look at the slavery laws in the old testament and you think oh my gosh who is this god and then you go further and you read into the new testament and there's they're a lot nicer about slaves but you know what they still support slavery they're still or at least maybe not promoting it but they're supporting it they're not advocating for its end or anything like that but as time goes on christians become some of the biggest proponents to fight slavery as well as the people that use the bible verses to support it and in time Slavery becomes disgusting, abhorrent. And we go, well, obviously that contextually throughout history was something that God wouldn't have wanted but worked with and moved his people in a direction that at one point in time we'd be able to go, no, this is not like God. This is not like Jesus. This is not a Christian thing to do. 
And so actually, the journey still happens in many areas. In many areas, we're still discovering what is it that we as humanity are getting to a place where God is ready to do something new, to do something interesting, to change the way we see things, to, to, to view him as even bigger than we did before. But that's exciting to me. But the thing that's even more exciting is as much as we see it on the big level, bring it right down and look at your own life because God does it with you. So if you think back 10 years to where you were with God 10 years ago, was God not there because you didn't believe right? Because let's be honest, right? Our beliefs have changed a lot in just probably a year, never mind five, never mind 10. So if God was with us 10 years ago, he was certainly with us five years ago. He was certainly with us two years ago. He's certainly with us a year ago. He's certainly with us now. But you know what? In a year, you're probably going to look back today and go, oh God, I can't believe I believe some of that. And so the beauty of it is God doesn't run from sin. He doesn't need you to believe everything right. He's so much bigger. So you can be in the midst of sin like Israel and in the midst of chaos and he's there and he's working with them and he's moving them in a direction. He's holding them by the hand going, let's go. And you can have the craziest beliefs about God, believing really horrific things about God. And God is big. He's, he doesn't have problems with pride. He's not like going, oh, they think something wrong with me. What will people think? You know, what will people think if I endorse these guys? It's like, no, he goes right in the midst of it and goes, hey, I'm your God. I'll walk with you through this. I can be the God that says it's good for an eye for an eye. If that's what you need right now, it's, well, I'll move you forwards. I mean, it's better than saying, you know, kill people that take out your eye. But I'm going to get you to a place where we're not cutting out our eyes anymore, hopefully. And the beauty of that is that it opens up our personal journey a whole bunch as well. And I think we often look at our, our personal lives as we started here, we meet Jesus, and we finish here. But I don't know how accurate that is. I think in one sense it is. Pre-cross, post-cross, boom, radical transformation, radical difference. You know, I do believe that in one sense. But I think in a greater sense, we've not arrived. We're still journeying with God. We're still learning. We're still growing. And he's still walking with us going, oh my gosh. I cannot believe Phil thinks this about me, but okay, let's keep moving and I'll keep revealing more and more of myself to him and in 13 years, he'll finally have gotten in that one, right? You know, and we'll be working on the next thing. Or, But the beauty of it is that we don't stop. We don't end. There's this amazing journey that we go on with God, much like this amazing journey that his people went on with him throughout the scriptures. Um, so yeah, I, I think as we look at scripture throughout the next few days, I want you to look at it through that lens. What does it look like through the lens of Jesus? I want you to look at every puzzle piece, whatever we look at, I want you to look at it through Jesus. Because if it doesn't line up with Jesus, you need to reevaluate that scripture and go, right, what is God doing? What was God doing? What was God saying to those people? How is it relevant to me today? Because there's loads of stuff in there that is not relevant in the same way, right? I was really tempted when I uh, got engaged to Tilly I was really tempted to go and cut off 200 Philistines' foreskins and give them to her dad because that's the good biblical model, right? It was in there in the Bible, and, you know. But it's really hard to find Philistines, never mind their foreskins. So I thought, you know what? I'll just ask for his permission. <laughs> right? The stuff in the Bible that's just not relevant, right? Thank you, Jesus, right? Because that doesn't sound like a fun exercise. When Paul says to Timothy, hey, I forgot my books and my coat. Could you pick them up and bring them with you when you visit? Have any of you gone to Ephesus to pick up Paul's coat and books like he asked in the Bible? 
No, because we know it's in the Bible, yeah, but he's writing a letter to his mate. And so we have to contextualize things and understand, okay, this is written by people to people, and oftentimes it is that more than it is God from heaven writing down like, hey, I did this and I want you to do this and I want like there's an engagement, there's a real human element to the scriptures and we have to hold that intention. And the, the way we do that is we hold up Jesus as the standard, the image of the invisible God. We have one thing that says, I am God. This is God. And it's Jesus, not the Bible. We'll stop there. Thank you for listening to the Destiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.